Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 24th of August, as we record. The dog days of summer, what little we had this year, are at an end, and even the UK company results are starting to dry up a little. But there's still some big ones out there, and plenty of other news besides, including macro issues and, yes, even IPOs. So we are addressing all of that on the show today, starting with a look at UK-based but US-bound chip designer Arm. We'll be discussing the outlook for the company as it prepares to go public across the pond. We're also going to be looking at China's latest woes, as well as this week's full year figures from one company exposed to some of that fallout, BHP. And we're discussing one of the big domestic winners of 2023. That's Marks and Spencer. Joining me to discuss all this are over the line, Julian Hoffman. Uh, hello, Dan. Yes. Ali Alanazi. Hi, Dan. And in the studio, Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. Arthur Sants. Hi, Dan. And Alex Hamer. Hey. Hi, everyone. Arm then. Much talk earlier this year about where it would list in the event uh, it chose New York. It's filed its uh, IPO prospectus now, Arthur. It's going to list, I think, by the end of next month. Two things, really. What what do we learn from that prospectus about the business? And is $60 billion, which it's targeting, and the laughter in my voice perhaps answers the question from my point of view there, is that a realistic valuation uh, given where rivals are trading? Um, No, probably it's not realistic. At least based on what the rivals are trading at. So um, I think 60 billion, which is what they're supposed to be aiming for, is 22 times its uh, revenue from last year. For comparison, AMD, which I think is probably its closest comparator, is on eight times last year's revenue. Um, And then Intel is three times I think they'll be hoping for is they can convince the market that they're more of an NVIDIA stock than an AMD stock. NVIDIA's trading on 36 times um, last year's revenue. But, of course, NVIDIA is exceptional. Um, Its results came out this morning and um, its revenue is up 88% just on the last quarter. And next quarter, they expect their revenue to be up 160% year on year. Whereas last year, armed revenue went down 1%. So um, the idea that it would be trading anywhere near NVIDIA is unlikely. The reason why NVIDIA and ARM's trajectories are completely different is because NVIDIA makes GPUs that are important for generative AI. And as everyone knows, um, the tech companies are obsessed with AI at the moment, so are spending loads of money on its GPUs. Whereas ARM CPUs mostly, well, so ARM actually is slightly different from these companies. ARM license architecture. um, So companies will pay to license ARM's architecture and then use them to make their own chips. Whereas with AMD, NVIDIA and Intel, they'll make their own chips and then get someone else to manufacture them for them. So they are slightly different types of companies. So for example, the majority of ARM's revenue comes from smartphones Apple licenses its architecture to make the chips for its phones, and it has like 99% of the um, smartphone market uses the ARM architecture. I mean, that that's, you know, ARM as the chip designer is, you know, a, a UK success story insofar as, you know, having 99% of a market as big as smartphones isn't anything to be sniffed at. But equally, 
as per you know his revenue growth or lack of growth last year that that's not really you know, there's a question of saturation there to some extent you know you can own 99% of a market but if that market isn't growing rapidly it's not going to be such a such a USP in the short term at least yeah so the mobile market seems to be reaching as you said saturation point most people have mobile phones or smartphones at this point um last quarter apple's iphone revenue was down 2% and consumer electronics which is where um makes the majority of its money hasn't done very well. Consumer electronics is very cyclical. When consumers have less money, electronics is often, they probably won't upgrade that iPhone or buy a new laptop um, because I guess it's just not super essential. Like the last generation's iPhone is pretty good. Some people will have like iPhone 10s or hold on to the same iPhone for like a decade and their lives are probably fine. So um, yeah, so there's like not that much. I think people aren't expecting there to be that much revenue coming from that sector. And actually, Arm in the prospectus gave some uh, growth expectations for each of um, the sectors it operates in. And actually, it's forecasting there to be flat growth in mobiles over the next two years, which is not great if you're targeting a massive growth valuation like it wants. The sector where it thinks it can grow the most is in cloud computing. Um Cloud, it says it's um, the CAGR for cloud over the next couple of years, it says it's going to be 16%. And also it's taking market share in cloud. So it's licensed um, to Amazon, Microsoft, Oracle, who are using its architecture to make its own chips, um, like the Amazon Graviton chip. Um, and ARM's taken market share. So it's gone from, it said it's gone from 7% of the market in 2020 to 10% in 2022. Um, which is similar to what AMD is doing as well. So AMD is also taking market share. So basically, I think they're all taking market share from Intel in cloud computing. The slight problem is um, currently the big cloud computing companies are actually spending less money on their CPU servers to spend more money on their GPU servers. So the GPU servers will do the big AI training, whereas the CPU servers are for like... um, running software or like storing your photos and stuff. So although they're important, um, while the big tech companies are trying to protect profitability, they're happy to sort of um, shift spending rather than actually increase spending on everything in order to get the other hands on these NVIDIA GPUs, which are really, I think they've doubled in price this year because demand for them is so high. They're just pulling spending away from other parts of the business, which hasn't been great for ARM, AMD, and Intel. So... Um, yeah, so, but growth should return in the next few years towards that when the economic prospects improve. Just to pick up on that last point, um, like you know, most tech stocks at the moment, most companies of any kind at the moment, was obviously making references to AI and its role it can play and its uh, you know growth prospects there. But as you imply, they may not be as significant, or certainly not as significant as someone like Nvidia, partly because its role in the spend, you know, that people are people are spending on AI, you know, services. His role is more tangential or more to the side than you know. The basically the CPUs that ARM is involved with are less of a core aspect of this massive AI spend than the GPUs that Nvidia is involved with. Yeah, exactly. So the AI boom isn't bad for ARM because, um, for example, Nvidia is a customer of ARM's. They'll use. There'll be CPUs in their 
chips, but the majority of it will be the value of that is the GPUs. The CPU kind of like tells the computer what to do, but the GPU does like all of the heavy lifting when it comes to training an AI um, algorithm. So you do need a CPU in there, which will often be an ARM, um, have ARM architecture, but the majority of the value is being spent on the GPUs and that money is going to NVIDIA. Um, ARM makes the point that um, it already does. So a AI or machine learning, like on your iPhone, if you're using Siri, which is machine learning, that would be an ARM chip doing that. Actually, I read in the prospectus that the number of cores um, on an ARM CPU actually has gone up from like, was it, I think it was like nine in 2016, up to almost 200 um, today, which means that actually those CPUs, even its CPUs have a more capacity to do um, run more complex algorithms. So maybe there's a, in terms of its growth story, I guess there's maybe a chance that actually when, if AI does become this like ubiquitous technology that everyone uses, your iPhone will need to have more computing power locally in order to be able to inference these like um, models that will be trained in these big computers that are owned by Amazon and Microsoft. So maybe your smartphones will start getting more expensive because they'll need more like um, computing power in there. And also ARM chips are good because um, they're very efficient. They don't use very much power, which is why they're very popular in phones and consumer electronics. So maybe they could find some niche where they do sort of AI inferencing for um, low power AI inferencing on your phones. And although, and then everyone will have to buy new upgraded phones in order to be able to interact with these AI models that are being created. But that's definitely a bit down the line. Um, and that is a, a gross story for them. But ultimately, it just looks like so much more similar to AMD as a company than it does to NVIDIA. And AMD, as I said, is trading on eight times forward earnings, which would be maybe which would be nearer to 30 billion valuation for ARM rather than the 60 billion it would be hoping for. ARM has also been uh, under question, under scrutiny this week for its exposure to China, which is, you know, a more difficult market nowadays than it was. Speaking of China, Ali... You've written about China for the economic section this week. Clearly, there have been problems bubbling under for a while, uh, bubbling over in some cases with the Chinese economy. Uh, but some of the figures in the past few weeks that have got people concerned have been inflation figures or rather deflation. What are those figures exactly and what can they tell us about the health of the Chinese economy and maybe the impact on the UK? Well, yes, Dan. Um, in July... Prices uh, fell by 0.3% compared with the previous year. So it's never a good sign for an economy, and it really shows kind of the disastrous effects of uh, oversupply following the end of lockdown. Um, Chinese deflation conundrum could actually spill over to the UK. Uh, there's a potential of a decrease in the demand for UK exports to China. Kind of China currently ranks seventh out of all. UK's export partners, so it's a it's a pretty big deal, um, as it's such a significant trading partner. Any weakness in the Chinese economy could unfavorably affect uh, UK listed businesses. In the scenario where Chinese consumers experience reduced economic stability, 
exports are expected to face challenges. Well, as you know, China had played a crucial role in driving sales for companies like Burberry and LVMH. Although wealthy fashion funds are usually more insulated from inflationary pressures, a further deterioration in China's economic outlook, in particular property prices, may still provoke uh, a tightening of uh, purse strings among China's uh, middle class. I suppose the the flip side for the UK is, uh, you know, China in some ways is, has been exporting deflation for years. Now we're in a situation where UK inflation, UK price growth is still much higher than we like. Could it be that, uh, you know, these deflationary pressures now help lower UK price growth? On the face of it, you could say Chinese deflation might be a good thing for the UK. So Chinese goods might seem more affordable, thus contributing to the UK's efforts to combat inflation by aiding local businesses in lowering their input costs. But I think that's far-fetched and the effects are likely to be minimal. UK's inflation has been primarily driven by food costs and wages, and the impact of producer prices has been waning. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. You know, the, the you know China's impact on the world is significant and on the UK, but but right now we you know we have different drivers of inflation. So you know, it's to be hoped that it might lend a helping hand, but probably not to be expected. Uh, you, you spoke about. Real estate, of course, and, and obviously that's another huge issue for the Chinese economy. Uh, what, what kind of problems have we seen specifically in the last few weeks with uh, specific companies, uh, starting with Country Garden? Well, it seems to be that the Chinese property sector is in a major crisis at the moment. you got Country Garden, which was once China's biggest property firm, which is on the brink now of default after missing two US dollar coupon payments worth 22.5 million US dollars earlier this month. They also suspended trading in 11 onshore bonds. Now the issue is whether it can make these coupon payments within a 30-day grace period and repay on time the rest of its loans and coupons. And, and it's not just Country Garden, you also got Evergrande, another property giant which has filed for bankruptcy. Evergrande uh, has faced kind of significant challenges since the country experienced a liquidity crisis in 2021, leading to defaults on its debt obligations. And over the last two years, uh, the company has reported a loss of $80 billion and is burdened with over $300 billion in overall liabilities. Kind of this has positioned Evergrande as the property developer with the highest indebtedness globally kind of sparking concerns of a potential kind of domino effect affecting not only China, but also spreading beyond its borders. Uh, Julian, maybe I'll bring you in here as well, because you've written separately on China uh, this week about, you know, the shadow banking sector, which, uh, you know, related deeply intertwined with real estate in many ways. Uh, You know, what are the issues you've been looking at? So basically, yes, shadow banking is a big thing in China in comparison to the system we have here in terms of financial transactions. They're basically trust companies that invest on behalf of wealthy individuals and companies. And the thing that is causing worries is that one of the bigger trusts recently suspended some of one of the trusts that was linked to uh, one of the biggest investment trusts started missing payments for some of its high yield products and um, this is a sign according to some analysts that 
the property distress is starting to feed into parts of the financial system and that this um, has a contagion warning attached to it. So, you know, shadow, shadow banking is worth about three trillion uh, US dollars and uh, the Chinese economy in total is worth about 18 billion. So it's a very significant uh, chunk of uh, the total economy. And uh, there, there's a kind of ripple effect that comes out of it. So firms of uh, property firms, loans have been going bad left, right, center. But um, if there is a, a shadow aspect to this, nobody quite knows then where the where the crockery is broken and which cover to look. You might have a situation where other financial institutions, such as more regulated banks in China, start uh, worrying about where their uh, liabilities actually are. So it's it is a it, it is a sign of a, a flashing red situation, I would say. And um, uh, it doesn't really help that lots of the statistics around around the sector and also other other. Um, official statistics have just been stopped so the the Chinese government's response has been just to simply not talk about it uh, and uh, it, it is making investors very nervous you, you can definitely clear, uh, see that uh, in the, the bond prices that are coming out so some investors like uh, Ashmore for example which is an emerging market investor they're, they're picking up property bonds for less than two cents on the dollar so it's uh, you know it, it is a it is a massive a massive massive issue and you know and it intertwines with a sector that uh, by some measures is the the you know china's property is the biggest asset class in the world uh, in any economy so the two have become weirdly intertwined or at least you know fatally intertwined and uh, if one goes bust and you know it could just ripple out into the second one so it's it's a, it's not a it's not a happy situation and you know, nobody nobody really knows what the response to it has been, and, and and really, the Chinese government has been quite sort of, um, you know, see no evil about it, which which also makes investors uh, nervous. So, so the housing minister's main suggestion is that developers who can't build new houses anymore should just start renovating slums or renovating shanty towns. That was the the major press release that came out. So it, it is it's it's not a happy situation by any by any means or measure. Probably brings us to BHP, Alex, our commodities writer, uh, which, as I said, had full year figures this week. Now, obviously, BHP is you know majorly exposed to China, uh, albeit there's a lot of other moving parts there as well. First of all, how did the figures look, uh, you know, operationally? And then we can get on to the China impact after that. Yeah, I think BHP is interesting, um, partly because they're. You know, the cash profits were down as expected. Iron ore is a bit weaker. Um, copper's a bit, bit, uh, copper prices a bit down on, on last year. Um, but it, it looks all right from an investor point of view because they maintain the dividend. And, and obviously that brings on questions about how can they, know if they can afford to keep these payouts going, um, given the, the weaker outlook for iron ore. You know, just given everything Ali's just told us, it does look a bit, um, Oh, the the forecasts are a bit cloudy um, in terms of in terms of payouts from a company like BHP, I and mean, the same applies for for Rio Tinto as well. But yeah, it's 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 hard to say. I mean, I I asked the CEO Mike Henry um, on Tuesday what the the balance sheet um, could withstand in terms of dividends because um, they paid out more than they brought in um, this year, or they paid out more than free cash. 
and they were pretty relaxed, to be honest. Um, the he and the the CFO pointed out that they had the six billion buyout of Oz Minerals this year, um, and they were still able to to pay out a fairly good dividend. It's less than last year, but that was, you know, record levels. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I think I think if you're looking purely on an operational and 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 you know cash profit basis, it wasn't a good half compared to last year. But on a on a longer term basis, they they bought um, a handful of new mines through the Osminals acquisition, um, which will be really important further down the line. They are setting up to. Um, setting up for a strategic review at the Escondida mine, which is the world's biggest copper mine, um, currently producing around a million tonnes of copper. They'll get that up to about 1.2 over the next few years, and then they'll have to think about what they do. So they've, they've put aside a few hundred million for that um, strategic review as well. Um, so it was kind of a almost like a refresh year um, for BHP. I think, yeah, I mean, what you're really asking about is, you know, what's the second half going to bring? Um, but you know, they were fairly bullish on the iron ore price, currently about $100 a ton. It, the company assumes it'll go down to about 80 or, or not go down below $80 a ton, um, which, would, which would be a significant hit um, to earnings. But they seemed fairly relaxed. I mean, despite that, you know, how dependent are they on, you know, Chinese growth or, you know, Chinese growth not? going into reverse much more than what we've seen already or not slowing down to such a great extent in future. Uh, massively. Um, yeah. You know, both BHP and Rio, they get between 60 and 70% of their cash profits from iron ore, and that iron ore is largely sold to, to China. What was interesting this year was, you know, this is just from a PR perspective really, but they were really talking up India as a buyer for both Met Coal and iron ore, and it remains... Uh, you know, a tiny proportion of their sales compared to China, um, but they are kind of trying to shift shift the story a little bit um, from just you know China G- GDP growth equaling cash profits and dividends um, for them. So yeah, it's um, it's I mean it's hard to say. They they are obviously going to paint a rosier picture than than you would expect, but there were some fairly yeah, some fairly fairly interesting comments from Mike Henry. Um, risk of reading out something. Um, his his vibe was basically um, the way the government does stimulus is changing, um, and he described it as being a more nuanced and, and finessed approach to 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 encouraging growth. Um, and the way I guess the effectiveness of those policies is not yet obvious to him. Um, and he phrased it as they're not taking or the impact has not, you know, come about as quickly as they would have thought. That just means that you can't really see the impact as well uh, yet um, compared to previous stimulus programs where they just, you know, kind of bazooka money into various um, various areas. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is obviously a very fairly, fairly biased set of numbers or set, set of fairly biased outlook from BHP. Um, because they want people to, to be relaxed about their prospects, but they have a pretty good history of of telling it like it is in terms of um, you know the Chinese picture and the the copper side of things. You know, as you say, there's more investment required there. You know, how long before that starts pulling its weight? You know, the copper price has been uh, you know all over the place to a certain extent. Uh, and mm. you know, 
not doing what people maybe thought it would, given its role in uh, transition, things like that. So, you know, what, what are the prospects there for that division? Well, I think, you know, historically, if we think about the copper price, previously $3 a pound or about, that's about $6,600 a tonne, was was seen as a as a pretty good price, and copper's been over eight thousand dollars a ton for a while now, and and expectations have have shifted. At the same time, the cost of of mining copper has gone up, so your your, you know the 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 price that you need to bring on new mines has increased, and and now we're thinking about when will copper stay over ten thousand dollars a ton or so, um, consistently, and bring on that new supply. Um, you know, I also asked um, BHP's management about this, and you know, fair enough. Mike Henry said it's it's a bit hard to find that exact inflection point where um, the near term weakness in copper turns into um, kind of a freak out in the industry, um, or further down the supply chain where people realise that actually we need a lot more than we can get our hands on right now, and they start buying it up, and then that drives that. That, that price shift, um, yeah, hard, hard to say. I think I think the, the the usual estimates are that in the by the between the middle of the decade and and you know twenty twenty seven twenty eight um, there will be a real shift and a real you know that sense of desperation about about supply for the metal um, just because so much of it is needed to in this big push for electrification. Um, so I mean the you know we we are fairly bullish on on uh, Antofagasta, um, even smaller copper companies like um, Atalaya, um, who have a good kind of production record um, and will be putting out tons um, into the, the 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 later part of this decade. Um, and I think, yeah, I, it, it, the switch will flick, but but at at what point? It's hard to say. And that means, uh, you know, because BHP. In line with, you know, its operational prowess, perhaps, you know, it is, you know, valued at the upper end of, you know, kind of mining sector, but we're still comfortable with that given the possibilities you've just outlined and, and more. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's about managing that, that seesaw of, um, you know, continued weakness in China will result in, in their businesses putting out far less cash, um, given iron ore will be, will be running cheaper. Um, there's also potential for massive amounts of new iron ore supply to come on um, through the Samandu project in um, Guinea. Um, but that's a while away, I think first production, 2030. Um, so it's about, you know, whether these majors, um, and I kind of, this is much more BHP and Rio um, than perhaps Anglo and, and Glencore, but whether those majors will, will kind of invest enough into something like copper, um, nickels, you know, the scale's a bit smaller, but equally important, um, and, and other things like that. They'll invest enough in that to balance out the potential decrease for, um, you know, a real slowdown in Chinese iron ore buying, effectively. Well, we are now going to turn something completely different from iron ore to M&S. Gemma, you have written about uh, M&S this week. I know we've spoken about it on the podcast before, but this is on the back of... Their upgrade to profit guidance, which really continues the the good news for the company, shares are, are up 
you know, 70%, I think, in 2023, which is pretty pretty incredible, having been in the uh, the doldrums for, for some time before that. It's about to enter the FTSE 100 as well, you know, all things uh, being equal for the next few weeks. What's it been doing well? What's going right for MS nowadays? Um, I think it's doing quite a lot well, actually. So historically, the clothing division has always been really troublesome. So since about, I think, almost a decade clothing sales have been on downward trajectory it's had lots of issues with sort of style perception and you'd go into the shops and it would have like a huge range of clothing um, seemingly aimed at a massive range of people Um, so it's been making a real effort there to basically reshape the division improve style perceptions and really cut down the range of stuff it's it's offering so on the one hand you've got that and then you have the food sales on the other side which is also doing okay, I think. So in the latest trading update, which covers roughly April to August, like-for-like food sales were up 11% and clothing and home sales were up 6%. So given the economic backdrop, people were pretty impressed by that. As you say, you know, it's a business of of two halves, as you mentioned in the piece, and the... the We'll come to food maybe uh, later on, but the clothing is is the, the side of the business... In particular, if people have thought, you know, it's got a, a you know, a reputation problem, it's got a, you know, issues with with making that attractive to to customers, basically. Uh, but it's really, you know, it seems to have certainly laid the groundwork for for that to change. And you know, people are analysts are certainly upping forecasts for years ahead now, and they have been for the last few months. A lot of it based on that clothing and homeware story. Uh, you know, this overhaul, though, isn't, you know, can we sp- speak a bit more about this overhaul and, you know, what they're doing and what they're doing to stores as well? Yeah, I think the first thing to mention is that it's expensive. So obviously you've got the clothing and homeware revamp, but below all of that, you've also got big changes happening with the store estate and its supply chain. And I think that's often overlooked because when you go into a store, the first thing you're thinking about is the products. But management is actively trying to basically change the the roots of the business, I think, to make them more efficient. So you've got this massive store overhaul where it's cutting back the number of full-line stores, opening a load of food halls and shifting a lot of shops from the high street into retail parks, which are apparently better shopping locations now. Um, And then as well as that, you have supply chain changes. So it acquired um, a company called Gist to try and improve its... uh, That was on the food side, so improve its food hall supply chain. Um, and I think if you think about a company like M&S, particularly in the food halls, what it sells, it's got so much fresh produce, like loads of sandwiches, salads, that sort of thing. So in a way, it's almost got a bigger hurdle than other supermarkets to get the food there on time, fresh and yeah, cheaply, I suppose. So those are a lot of expensive changes that are happening, I suppose, over the next few years. And despite years. You know, the uh, analyst upgrades, which you always get at a time of optimism, you know, that is going to weigh on cash flow uh, in the years ahead as well. So it's something to watch out for for there. Yeah, so it's a little bit tricky because when you're looking at the profits, it's not always immediately obvious. So M&S adjusts its profits quite heavily. Um, and it's actually when you go to the annual report and you look at where the adjustments are, you see actually this is costing a lot. So in 2023, I think there are £112 million worth of adjustments and that have been a lot higher in previous years. Um, and then obviously it sort of felt through the cash flow statement as well in the capital expenditure. So last year, I think it was about £410 million worth of capital expenditure that was being pushed through. And again, that is less than previous years, but still still a 
sizable, sizable chunk of and money. As of yet, I suppose the other fly in the ointment is that this isn't really translating into sort of big margin improvements. You know, MS margin is still relatively low, certainly we can when you compare with, you know, sector leaders like Next, things like that. Definitely. And I think one of the issues that might rear its head in the future is the online side of things. So MS is wanting to have much more of an online presence, make people buy the clothing and home wear stuff on the internet. But there's a question of whether the infrastructure is there, I think, and how much it will need to spend to get it to the point where it's an efficient business model. Um, and last year, again, that side of the profit margins really decreased quite steeply. Um, and they were announcing more investment, I think, in that project. So that could become an issue further down the line. The online side brings us to the food retail as well. And obviously the JV with Ocado, uh, which is always the subject of much interest, partly because uh, outside of you know this aspect, it can be hard to get a sense of how other grocers or online businesses uh, are doing, uh, normally because they're doing quite badly. What kind of sense do we have of how, how this has been developing in recent months? Not that well, I would say. And this isn't dodging the question, but it might be useful to bring Julian in here because I know he's um, spoken about Akedo before. Um, but I think the general sense I've had from analysts is just this utter frustration that operations haven't improved, really. And what the question of what MS is going to do well, about it. I'll take your it. advice and uh, ask Julian because, yeah, this is the eternal problem with uh, online groceries, right, Julian? Uh, but Ocado in particular, I think you have some thoughts on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought Ocado was rubbish 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> so, and the, the issue they have, and it's always going to be the the problem with uh, online-only type groceries, is that the capital expenditure you need in order to get those uh, things off the ground is enormous. And uh, for whatever reason, even robots and, uh, and uh, um, personnel-less uh, warehouses need to be replaced over that time. So Ocado's actually been running so now so long that its original warehouses are having to be closed down because they've got uh, aging and uh, aging over capacity i can never see where they're going to make the money i think that's the the thing that uh, the market is is always underrated is where is when is this this rush of, of profitability going to come through and uh, it's just so inflexible i just i, I don't find it a, a business of um, any particular uh, ability to scale itself, and uh, yes, I mean, yeah, Gemma's right. There's the JV with um, with Marks and Spencers is, I think, they valued it at uh, three fifty million at one point, and um, I mean, that's the every time you look at the results, the the, the carrying value of that is going down another few million, and um, I suspect uh, before we see the next results, that they'll just have to write it off as a as a as a loss. Um, yeah, yeah. From Ocado's point of view, obviously the bull case is that they are now, you know, much more a tech company and they can sell this tech to other supermarkets, which they have done at the margin. But but as you say, the question yeah, it's of all when, a bit, it's a bit tech schmick, to be honest. <laughs> the question of and when when that uh, you know they're going to see some real gains from that is also uh, you know at some point in the future. The good news for M and S, I suppose, is that uh, you know the the payments they have to make. I think well, they have a payment coming up to make. For the, uh, for the joint venture is lower than first thought because the business hasn't been doing so well. Gemma, when we talk about the valuation of MS though as well, because as I say, it is up, you know, 70% this year. Is it up with events as well now? It's tricky. I was having a look at what it was trading on um, just before the podcast started. So its forward price to earnings ratio is now 11.3, which is a little bit higher than its five-year average of 105 
it's it's hard to know. It depends very much on what you think the group's traje- trajectory will be. So one analyst I was speaking to was saying, you know, M&S is really pushing for growth. Its management team is working behind the scenes, thinking of new ways to grow. It's not going to just be a, a stable income play. And another one was saying, basically, it's all a mystery. There's no visibility. Um, we're still in the midst of this massive transformation plan. So to me, at least, it doesn't look hugely tempting as a valuation just yet. I, I would personally want a bit more visibility on on how the turnaround's going, which is very much what I said when I was last on the podcast, so we'll still see, sitting yeah. on the fence. Well, the, the context as well is, of course, the backdrop for uh, consumer spending, I suppose, in general in the UK and how resilient UK retail is and has been. I mean, since since you were last on, it's continued to uh, perhaps a surprise uh, in terms of the resilience of UK spending, UK sales. But in the last few weeks, we have seen some, or last few days even, some data points which are a bit, uh, you know, flashing red a little bit more. Retail sales last month were worse than expected, albeit that could be due to weather. Um, PMIs this week as well. I suppose that's, you know, obviously another question that people have to consider when looking at a retail-facing company. Yeah, in a truly British fashion, lots of companies have been making references to the weather. So when Next upgraded its profit forecast, it was saying, you know, we had a really hot June that really fueled demand. um, And that is now long gone. Um, August seemed to be a complete washout. So and that seemed to depress the retail sales figures in the UK. So I don't know, there is is a chance of a a slowdown in the clothing section, I would say. Um, But largely because of these sort of fluctuations throughout the year that does bring us to the end of today's show though so thank you to everyone thank you to arthur thank you to Gemma. thank you to alex to julian and to ali we'll see you next time on another companies and market show hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.